When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This is Tom Hogan, co-author of The Ultimate Startup Guide. Marketing lessons, war stories, and hard-won advice from leading venture capitalists and angel investors. And you are listening to the finest in radio, the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017 this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code marketingbook and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome Tom Hogan to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Carol Broadbent, The Ultimate Startup Guide, Marketing Lessons, War Stories, and Hard-Won Advice from Leading Venture Capitalists and Angel Investors. Tom Hogan is one of Silicon Valley's marketing pioneers with over 25 years of high-tech marketing experience, including positions as VP of Corporate Marketing at such companies as Oracle, Borland, Lucent, and Vital Signs Software. He and his co-author, Carol Broadbent, are the co-founders of Crowded Ocean, Silicon Valley's top marketing firm for startups. And, interesting fact, he's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. Tom, congratulations on the Ultimate Startup Guide, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks very much, Douglas. Thanks for having us. So you, believe it or not, are the second author who's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School that's been on the Marketing Book Podcast. Okay. It's not a niche I'm going after, but... Yeah, I was going to say, that that's true narrow casting. (laughs) That's right. It's Dory Clark, who has been on the show twice. She's the author of Reinventing You and Stand Out. So very interesting background. And your agency name is Crowded Ocean, but Tom, I've got to ask, at some point, Maybe after a few drinks when you were founding it, did you ever think about calling it Hogan's Heroes? No, I never did. But it is interesting. You get the you can fi- figure out the generations from either 
you know, your parents knew it as Ben Hogan. Our generation knew it as Hogan's Heroes, and then the subsequent generation knew it as Hulk Hogan. So oh, you get it right. one way or another. All right. So three. I just dated myself. but There you go. There you go. So, Tom, I often wear a bow tie to work, and, and I make a video at the end of every interview. I make a video review of each book, and I'll be doing one for you. But today, I'm wearing something very different than I've ever worn to my office. I am wearing a black mock turtleneck. I'm wearing blue jeans and running shoes. And I have an iPhone in my pocket. There you go. So, you know, I, I came downstairs today and my college age daughter saw me and she said, hey, Steve Jobs. I know. <laughs> so, now all you need to do is go bully your uh, cohort in the office today and you'll be complete. There you go. There you go. So there's one thing I want to mention about your book. And I don't know if it's a dirty little secret or not, but it's clearly targeted for the startup world. But if I had to guess, based on having read it, 85% of the book or more <laughs> applies to any business. In other words, there's so much in the book that doesn't necessarily apply to startups. Large companies should be doing a lot of the things that you talk about. Yeah, I would say so as well. I think it's one of those things where, in fact, Carol and I have been talking about putting together a workshop that has to do with all of the lessons of a startup for major enterprises that have fallen out of touch with the marketplace because they they can't respond quickly enough to the market because they've lost the startup gene. And I think you can reclaim it even as a large company. Yes. And there's a lot to be said for thinking like a startup. So, you know, inertia is the strongest force on planet Earth, I think, at least in the corporate world. So that could really help to shake things up. But Tom, the big question is, and you talk about this at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. Why is Steve Jobs the worst thing to happen to startups and their CEOs? You know, I think the biggest issue that we encounter is that first-time CEOs. And I think that's a, a distinction we need to make when we say that Steve Jobs is the worst thing to happen is that they've all read his book or they've read the biographies or whatever. And what they take away is that it's okay to be a boorish asshole and to treat all of your, your customers as, you know, fools that, you know, will be grateful that you came along and told them what they need and treat your employees like crap. And so what we wind up having to do is kind of take our founding CEOs out to the woodshed. And luckily, we take equity with every customer that we work with so that we can speak honestly to them and say, listen, you're hurting your long term. This, this may look good to you and feel good to you right now that you can throw a tantrum and get your website ready two days earlier than it was going to be, but you just lost your web development company in the process. And if you do that with your clients or with your employees, you're going to be a short-term CEO. There's only one Steve Jobs, and, and even he had to learn some hard lessons before he became you know, the Steve Jobs with the capital S and J that we all revere now. And I think you mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, people refer to him as just Steve Right. <laughs> like, you know, like share or stand. Yeah, like share or, you know, uh, any of the others that are uh, Elton. Yeah, he's he's definitely, you know, a one of a kind out here and you know, when when he died, it was like Elvis dying. The stores were, you know, 
draped in crap and people lined up and put up, you know, little uh, shrines to him on the street. It was pretty interesting. Yeah. So let's talk just a little bit about startups. You mentioned in the book that the number of startups in the U.S. has fallen in the last 30 years. Let's talk about some numbers. What are some of the common numbers about what percentage of startups fail and within what amount of time? Well, the numbers I don't think have changed. The number of startups, as you pointed out, have changed. The percentage of failure has stayed pretty constant over the last 20 to 30 years. And that is that, you know, 90 plus percent of all startups are out of business by the end of two years of operation. And that's a pretty daunting figure if you're a a would-be startup or would-be CEO because those numbers haven't changed even though all of the technology and all of the supporting infrastructures have. And only a small percentage get funding venture capitalists. Is that right? Right. It, I mean, and, and you can look at that two ways. I mean, you know, a lot of people regard taking money from uh, VCs as taking money from the mafia is that, you know, you're going to have to pay for it with a lack of, you know, ownership or, or the whole idea is I, I've now kind of gotten in bed with someone who can tell me what to do. And so a lot of these companies do try and do as much as they can with a bootstrap and a friends and family starting point to give them more leverage with the VCs. But also there's a, the VCs only invest in a handful of companies a day. And we're sitting in a VC office right now doing this interview, and there's a stream of people out in the lobby, you know, who are sitting there with their laptops ready to present, and nine out of ten of those are going to be rejected even before they get into the the funding game. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the biggest reasons why startups fail? I, I think the most critical reason that they fail is that they're building what they want to build rather than what the market needs. And while that sounds, you know, commonsensical, it isn't. If they've got a great idea, they're going to see that through and then hope that either the market comes to them or the market wanted this all the time. But they're driven by the idea that they had. And so I think the companies that we've seen the most successful are the ones that really go out and take the temperature and the pulse of the marketplace company that we just uh, finished working with had over uh, 150 interviews with the kind of people that they were eventually targeting with security software. And as a result, their initial idea probably changed 40% by the time they sat down and started to develop it. So I think the idea is if if you can validate your idea with the marketplace early and then adjust it accordingly, that's your best chance of success. So Simon Sinek is the author of a few books, and one of the most popular ones is Start With Why. And (laughs) I was wondering if you could explain why just the title of that book is some of the best advice for startups. Well, you know, when we, and you can forget whether it's the technology or the underlying ingredient, if it were, you know, a, a consumer product or whatever, But when we sit with early stage companies before we even take the gig with them, we'll sit there and say to them, listen, marketing really has four levels. Level one is what we'll call dexahydrochlorophene, some unique ingredient. Level two is whiter teeth. Level three is more dates. And level four is get lucky. And the whole idea of start with why is the get lucky idea is ask your client or your your would-be buyer what does success look like for you why should i build this product 
what need does it fill for you, et cetera? Because unfortunately, with most companies, they start at level one with dexahydrochlorophene or whatever is that unique capability that they have. And they think that if they just define it a little better and a clearer and teach people how to spell this complex term, that the people will automatically jump to get lucky and say, oh, I can see that. <laughs> so I think the, the biggest idea is, you know, start with, hey, listen, I'm not getting enough dates on a Saturday night. You know, I haven't uh, had a date in three years. There's your problem statement. And then I'm going to work down to eventually telling you why my toothpaste with dexahydrochlorophene is going to get you more dates. But it's just one of those situations where if, if you get stuck in the weeds, you'll never reach your, your clients with the right way. Yes, and it just has such global implications for any kind of marketing or any kind of sales. Right. So it's, it's interesting to hear that it's, it's tied in even to that. So one other thing I wanted to get to before we start getting into some of the, the details about some of the marketing things is that you mentioned that there's lots of entrepreneurs, and I guess I had heard of this too, they're, they're always talking about wanting to start a whole new category. Right. You know? But you explain that no matter how unique or compelling you think your product or your idea is, you don't have enough money or time to create a new category, period. Explain what you mean there. Yeah, and we probably have two examples, and I think we put them both in the book, but one was that we had a client who did middleware and could have uh, enabled people to communicate better with each other, and so they told us, we're going to market as the first work processor, and they stopped and looked at us, and they said, get it? Word processor, but work instead, and they were just pleased as punch, and we said, well, okay, but two questions. Who at Gartner, which is the leading analyst firm that you want to reach when you're going to uh, covers work processors, and if I go to a trade show, on what aisle am I going to find the work processors? And they understood, you know, that was a category that someone else was going to have to invent, not them, and they, they moved away from it. On the flip side, we had a client called Palo Alto Networks, which was wound up being exceptionally well-received by the market, and originally they took this very clearly to heart and they said, we're going to go out as just a, an appliance, even though we are a next generation firewall, we haven't coined that phrase yet, but we used it enough internally with the analysts that the analysts took it and ran with it. And it obviously put us in a, in a wonderful position. Once they created the category, we were the leading player in it, but it's everyone else who creates the category you can only shape the conversation. Do you think that people think they're going to have fewer competitors if they perceive that they have their own category? Is that what leads them Absolutely. to this? Absolutely. You know, Douglas, that's that's the problem is they think a lack of competition means a greenfield and open running for them. The problem is there's no one in that field looking for that. And so the the lack of competition is actually a negative once you're an established company because people want to compare you to someone else and say, oh, I see how you're better or I see how I could do this or that with you that I wouldn't elsewhere. And the problem is it also gives people a, a founding touchstone. Oh, I see you're this way except like a frame of you know, reference. Better. Yeah. And if you don't have that, I'm going to wonder, you know, A, 
do I really need this technology since so, no one else is making it? And B, do I want to be a guinea pig? So it's, it's better. You know, we had a company, Sumo Logic, that was competing with a company called Splunk, and Splunk has been phenomenally successful. But you could say Splunk is on premise. We go to the cloud. So we're Splunk, but to the cloud. And we were smarter with our technology. And we said, we're Splunk, but with a brain. And everyone got it. And it saved Sumo probably six months in going to market by leveraging their competitor. Right. And should add for the listener's benefit, you talk about Sumo Logic throughout the book. It's almost like a, a journey we go on nearly every chapter. You talk about what's in the chapter, and then you say, now here's how it applied to this one particular company, which was right. very generous in sharing their story with you. I found it interesting that you said that it comes as a surprise to many founders the number of different audiences they're selling and marketing to. <laughs> could, could you talk about that? Did they think they were only going to have like one? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it, it's probably when we do the, the workshop that we do, it's probably the first aha moment for your listeners. If they just drew a line in their mind and on one side was V and on the other side of the spectrum was F, the V is for vision and the F is for functionality. Mm -hmm. And within that spectrum, there are probably seven different audiences. And so the idea is that in the early stages of a company, you're selling your vision, the V side. You're trying to reach influencers. You're trying to reach people like yourself with this radio show. You're trying to reach the analysts that I just talked about. And you're trying to give them the fullest possible picture of why you're wonderful and why you should invest in me, why you should follow me, why you should write about me. But on the, the F side, functionality, this is where sales lives and it's what can you do for me today? Mm -hmm. I don't care about your vision. I will care about it once I buy your product and I want to see where you're going and you're going to take me with you. But I'm more interested in what can you do for me today? And those people are the immediate press. Those people are prospects. They're new hires that you need to bring in. And so you look and if you start looking across that entire spectrum, it's just not prospects or customers you're selling to. It's recruiting, it's analysts, it's influencers, it's press. And you need a, a marketing program for each of those. Speaking of marketing programs, uh, let's talk... <laughs> <laughs> about treacherous water. I'm in the agency biz, so are you. I should say this this came of interest, and I guess it resonated with me. You mentioned that some of your clients uh, of yours, they start to drift toward treacherous water with the idea of trying to save money because they either have a low regard for marketing <laughs> or a high regard yeah. for their employees. They want to do as much in-house as possible. Why have you seen that be a problem? Well, I think it's one of these things where there's kind of three stages to our engagement with a company or if anyone else were going in as initial VP of marketing. There is, for lack of a better term, if we use the analogy of building a house, there's the idea of sitting down initially with the architect and, and saying, no, I don't want a colonial, I want a contemporary house, I want it to be LEED certified, all of the things that go into the company's vision and structure. And that's phase A. Phase B is then we go away and we create an entire set of blueprints as well as the contractors who could best execute against whether it is your air conditioning or your flooring or whatever. 
that's taking your design of A and putting together, for lack of a better term, your go-to-market strategy. And then C is the idea of, now here's all the people that you're going to need to build this house. And I just articulated some of them, you know, flooring, foundation, backhoe, boom, boom, boom. It makes no sense to do A and B with the pros and then say, thanks, we'll take it from here. I don't think we're going to use Cat4 wiring. We're going to use telephone wiring. It'll save some money. Or my cousin Shecky has a Mac, so I'm going to let him build our website. And yet that's what we see all of the time is that they'll they'll spend up front to articulate the design and build the blueprints, and then they'll short themselves, and they'll wind up with a house built on sand that needs to be restructured or retrofitted way too early in the company's history. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about websites. I would guess maybe the second half of the book goes into some real specific things that the startup folks are going to learn from, I hope, but also just completely applicable to beyond the startup world for people who don't self-identify that way. And in that chapter on websites, you mentioned that today's dating scene is a control freak's dream. Tom, Explain why you mentioned the dating scene as it relates to building a website. You know, it really is one of those odd scenarios in the sense that if you think about what business used to be like and what dating used to be like, you know, if you were suddenly single, Douglas, and I said, hey, I know this great person and I'd really like, or maybe you go out to a bar and you meet someone, but I mean, that you were taking a hell of a chance there, you know, either in my judgment or in your choice of bars. And now you look at it and I mean, the very first thing is they Google you and then they can do an online search for you, including net worth and, you know, anything. And so all of a sudden, if I were single today, I'd certainly be going into my first date a hell of a lot more armed than I would have been prior to that. And it's the same thing with the website. The website, that's your ability to essentially skew that initial date in your favor. You know, if you want that person to see an initial video of you discussing your technology, or if you want them to take a test drive because your demo is hell on wheels, or if you want them, you can guide them through that in a way that prior to actually sitting down with them at the restaurant, you've got control of that through the website. You can say, I want them to go here first, here second, and here third. And at that point, they've downloaded a white paper, they've taken the demo, and they've seen a video of you and your founder talking about it all. And then you can start the sales process. But you've certainly crafted the playing field to your advantage. I had not thought of the dating analogy because fortunately I got married over 25 years ago and it's still married. But one thing you mentioned in the book is something that I've found helpful is when you try to say, well, think about how you buy a car now versus 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost the last thing you'll do is show up for the test drive. Or if you're like my wife, you did all your research. And then when you were in another town, you test drove the vehicle. So she still didn't have to go to the dealership where she was going to buy it. Right. So in the section on website, you talk about content, conversions, and competition. Three very important things to be thinking about when you're focused on your website. Can you talk a bit more about these three C's of websites, and particularly as it relates to not getting so distracted by the design and the style and all that? Right. Those three come from, you know, my partner, Carol, and she runs the website part of our engagements with those three C's in mind. But the content for anyone who's listening is 
lesson number one is you can never have enough content, you know, whether it is a white paper or a compelling video, A, you can always repurpose these things into blogs, into speaking opportunities, into presentations, et cetera. And B, you've got to keep people coming back. And that's where I think blogs are important and the second and third white paper. So if I start with a very high level business one that grabs you and you turn to your technology person and you say, okay, now I want you to evaluate this for me. I want to have a second white paper that's intended for him or her. And then a, a demo that maybe they're more technical people are able to do. So you've got three levels of white papers right away. You probably should have at least two levels of blogs, a business centric one that your executive team contributes to and a technology one for those people who really want to get into the weeds. Mm -hmm. So content is one of these continual feed the beast animals. And you made it, I should add, you made it very clear in the book several times. <laughs> I think you even started to joke about it towards the end about, did I mention you can't have enough content? Yeah. <laughs> and that's all come from Carol beating me on the head because I'm the content guy, but she's the one who has to have all of the two C's that you're talking about after that. The conversion is, you know, go back to the dating analogy. If all you have is a bunch of first dates, unless that's all you want to do is wow people with your, you know, curriculum vitae or, or your, you know, uh, wonderful stories about yourself, you want to move from, you know, first date through all of the processes to either, you know, get lucky or marriage or whatever. And that means conversion at each step. It means going from first date to, well, this was nice. Should we see each other again? Well, you know, should we meet the parents? Blah, blah, blah. The point is, each of those is a conversion step, and except for impulse buys, everything is conversion. You're moving a person from complete lack of knowledge to informed, and then from informed to interested, and then from interested to engaged, etc. And you need a tool to move people at every step of the way, and that's the content that you were talking about. And then the last C that you are asking about is, we find that most of our clients either out of hubris or just because they're so stretched, they don't pay any attention to the, the competition. They either don't regard them seriously enough or they just take their eye off the ball because they're just so busy getting their product launched. And the companies that we found to be the most successful have, you know, the equivalent of the Clinton war room when they were, you know, running their competition, uh, you know, uh, it's the economy stupid up on the wall. They'll print out the websites for their competition and put them up on the wall. If they ever lose to the competition, they'll have a post-mortem where they give an honest assessment of, you know, why they lost and what they can do different. And it's just a tough thing to get across to our, they'll all say, we're going to do that as soon as we come up for air. But then we come back six months later just for a checkup and nothing's changed on the competition front. Back to the content, I want to ask you to explain why you talked about search engine optimization in the content chapter and not in the website chapter. I thought that was very significant. Well, I mean, and for your listeners, I mean, the idea is the search engines just get smarter and smarter every day. And, you know, they, they've got these filters where they can really distinguish between crap and fact. And so the more that you can take your key enabling technology and put it in 
the more authoritative parts of your website, the technological or the drill downs or whatever, you're going to get a higher ranking than if you just have it, uh, you know, in the in the bullshit part of the site where you're full of promotions and self-aggrandizement, et cetera. So, you know, the engines are just getting smarter and you need to keep up with them. And that means, you know, making sure that you get your content message, uh, that you embed those core messaging elements that people are going to search for in your content because it's going to rank higher than if you just do it in advertising. Yeah, I heard another expert saying that, you know, if you're if you're talking to an SEO firm, they better be talking to you about content, not on-page tinkering right. of your website. So let's talk a bit about PR. Can you explain what VC macho limbo is? <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things that we get, and we're sitting in a VC office right now, so I'll be careful about this. So you're under duress, Tom? You know, yeah, there's the bunker mentality. But unfortunately, a lot of these VCs either, A, have forgotten what something costs or never knew about it in the first place, or B, are, are wedded to a, a pay structure before they became a VC. And so, for example, in, in Silicon Valley right now, to launch a company, get a PR firm on for probably two months before you go to market, and then for that first year at least, and you're paying probably 15000 a month, and that's a lot of money. But remember, these are enterprise-level customers you know, that really need to be touched. The problem is, is that when the founder who finally learns that they can't find anything of quality for less than that goes and presents to the VCs. The VCs are full of this kind of macho of, well, I never paid more than 7,000. Well, that might've been in 2008 when the Valley was, you know, in distress, but they've kept that number in their head. And then they'll try and out macho the guy next to them who will say 7,000, geez, I never paid more than six. And they'll just try and out macho each other to the detriment of the poor CEO who's made to feel like a fool for having to pay market rates in 2017. Right. So can you just touch on what PR can do and, and what it can't do? I, I got the sense that there's some unrealistic expectations among startups for what PR can do. Well, I think the, the biggest issue that CEOs have is that they believe that they can turn PR on and off, which, is, which would be great if you could. You know, in other words, I need to launch the company. I know that. So I'm going to pay that 15000 a month for the month before the launch and the month after the launch. But then I'm going to go dark and save that 15000 for something else. I understand that logic completely. Unfortunately, two things. You do that, you're not going to be able to get the firm back that you had such success with because they will have moved on to, you know, uh, other engagements and can't keep adjusting to a stop-start kind of approach. The second thing is that PR, using a hackneyed kind of the analogy, but they're planting a lot of seeds that may not come up above the surface for four, five, or six months. But they need to be cultivating their audiences as you grow as a company and then bringing you back into the play. So it's a very, very hard sell for a, a cash-strapped startup. They're also, you know, if you pay very little for PR, then what you have is essentially a downstream, what we call a downstream agency, which means it's, it's good, but it's waiting for you to tell them what to do, and then they'll execute. 
And if you really know your market and you know who you want to reach and whatever, a downstream agency that might cost you $10,000 might do just the trick. But most of our CEOs don't have that kind of connection or knowledge. And as a result, they're going to get nothing because the PR firm is waiting for them to tell them what to do and they don't know what to tell them. Mm-hmm. And that's so, in contrast uh, to what you call an upstream PR firm, right? which is where they're guiding you, bringing you insights, basically telling you what you need to do. And I'm guessing maybe giving you pushback when it's appropriate. Absolutely. You know, the upstream agency for us is, is we won't deal. We know a couple of downstream agencies. And if we get a real opinionated, real, I know everything CEO, we may connect the two. But everyone that we work with needs that upstream agency who sits at the big table with you, who pushes back, as you, as you just said, Douglas, is one of those things of, you know, we could do that, and I can see why it looks good to you right now, but in four months, we're going to need to retrench. And that's, that's where an agency really earns its pay. I couldn't agree more. And there's an expression I once heard, which was, a good agency is one that if their client has broccoli on their teeth, they'll tell them. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you about the book. And you mentioned that the founder who brags that he didn't spend a dime on marketing and sold his company for a gazillion dollars is responsible for more company failures than you can count. Say a bit about that. Well, you know, and there are a few of those. Yeah, but there's a few uh, people that win the lottery, too. Right. That that's, a, that's the best way to put it. That's where we were going with that is that, yeah, I, I think that that is the, the detriment. If you take a look at WhatsApp, for example, a good friend of ours helped sell it for, I think it was $18 billion. And they essentially guerrillaed themselves. They found the right place in the marketplace. And there was an Australian company who had the same claim. And the point is, is that you hear that story, you repeat it, and it, it kind of gets stuck with people. But as you, as you pointed out, it's the lottery or it's getting struck by lightning or whatever is, it is hardly the norm. I mean, the fact that we can count on one hand the number of companies that have had that kind of success without a marketing investment indicates how rare it is. So, Tom, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think the... From our standpoint, this is, despite the, the waning numbers of startups that are out there, there's never been a better time to start up in the sense of if you've got a great idea, you can get it to marketplace in a way that couldn't have happened before without a, a lot deeper pockets in the background. And what we mean by that is that, you know, for example, if I were still running corporate marketing at Oracle, in the old days, I had a department of 75 people. Today, that department would probably be 12 people, and we would be outsourcing everything on an as-needed basis to people who have no overhead, who are much smarter, because that's all they do, whether it's SEO optimization or website design or whatever. So the whole idea is between virtual marketplaces, the ability to go out quickly with the lean startup model that you hear a lot about from people where you throw things out into the marketplace only um, moderately done, but you react and respond quickly to whatever feedback you get. You add all those things up and there's never been a better time to be a startup. And that would be the one takeaway that we have for clients is or or would be 
CEOs is if you've got the right idea, the resources and the markets are there to support it. What books have inspired your work and career, Tom? You know, if we were talking to like a a class of graduates or whatever, and we were uh, telling them what books to get, one book that is, it's a classic, but it's still very, very valuable, is Crossing the Chasm Mm. from Jeffrey Moore. And, you know, we've worked with Jeffrey over the years, but, you know, it's still incredibly valuable for people to understand, you know, how you can start out great, have initial success, and then stall until you learn how to really cross that chasm into general market acceptance. There's another book that I alluded to just a minute ago, and that's The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, R-I-E-S. And that one is more the idea of, as we said, you don't need to have a fully baked, finished product that takes two years to get out into the marketplace. If you set the right expectations with your market, you can get it out earlier in a more rudimentary fashion and then build on it and respond to it in a way that gets you revenue faster, but also makes the market see you as wanting to hear from them rather than just telling them, shut up and eat. And then the third is Good to Great by Jim Collins. I think those would be uh, the three. There's also a, a new book, Inbound Marketing, by a Dharmesh Shaw, S H. A-H. And, and Brian Halligan, yeah, the, the founders of HubSpot. Yeah. And, I, you know, so, so the books are out there. And also, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the blogs. Uh, it doesn't have to be books. I mean, the blogs are more responsive. They're more immediate. And they can lead you to conversations with potential founders or early employees, etc. And so anything that you can do online A, it's cheaper than going and buying the books. It's probably more contemporary, and it's going to lead you to other conversations that might develop your startup. Well, that's true, Tom. I might give you a little pushback there because I think books are part of a balanced diet of uh, learning, along with podcasts and blogs and going seeing people speak. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you've heard of that you might recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know, the the most recent, as you said, is from the HubSpot team. I think that that whole idea, those guys have done a wonderful job of kind of recrafting the landscape. And Get Found is another one that, you know, from the, the same group. And I, I think if there's anything that we would say to people, it's find the people who impress you, whether they've written books or not. They've probably published articles. If their PR firm is any good, you can see them on YouTube with inspirational speeches, whether, you know, it's at these major conferences or whatever. But, you know, follow the individuals. I agree with you. Podcasts, books, but anything that where you can get online with someone and and follow where they're going. We probably have eight or ten that we get every day from companies like CB Insights, Forbes and Fortune actually both have good kind of startup blogs or listings every day. So uh, it's out there. Mm, We'll make sure to link up those in your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. So Tom, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, we're at www.crowdedocean.com. And the book is available on Amazon and in a number of uh, brick-and-mortar stores, the Barnes & Nobles of the world that are still in business. 
<laughs> and and anyone who's got any questions about anything, the website has our contact information, and we're happy to either talk or respond by email to any questions that would be or early stage startups are having. Well, great. That's thank. Thanks for doing that. The name of the book is The Ultimate Startup Guide: Marketing Lessons, War Stories, and Hard Won Advice from Leading Venture Capitalists and Angel Investors. The authors are Tom Hogan and Carol Broadbent. Tom, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. No, our pleasure. Thanks very much for having us. And that closes the book on episode 131 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com, click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you, and then, for the very best price, enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And if you have any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Ryan Holiday back to the show to talk about his new book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.